Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tian, and I am a portfolio manager with Red Wheel. This is the second part of my interview with Sasha Sedan. Sasha is the newly created director of ESG at the FCA. In part one, we discussed challenges to ESG from some recent high profile criticism, expanding multiples of popular ESG stocks and sectors onto the creation of the International Sustainability Standards Board and how that might help reduce the confusion around ESG ratings. In this second part of the conversation, we focused on labeling, particularly on the transition and impact labels. We also spoke about the UK government's net zero ambition and what that might mean. We touched on universal owners' increasing focus on system issues and the increasing calls for devolving shareholder voting rights. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And this kind of leads on to labeling. And, and before I get to the discussion paper that the, the FCA published in November, there was the Dear Chair letter that was published last July, and it was very interesting. And, and to quote one line from it, it said, customers find it difficult to assess whether authorized funds meet their needs and, and preferences. And really, I guess the, the struggle that we have is that are the two objectives of navigating the most difficult of transitions and simplifying products for the retail customer, are they really compatible? Well, let me start from the other way around. Should we just do nothing and leave it to wonderful commercial organizations to put whatever they want out and leave it to them because it's, so, it's too hard to do anything about it? And the answer is absolutely no, we can't, because at the moment it's even more confusing. And when I speak to any of the CEOs of great asset management firms, it's not just asset managers who sell financial products, but let's use them as an example. They say, we just need a bit more of a steer. We need some help. We don't want all the rules. Now, I do think that the two pager that could be out there for a consumer could be a consistent standard of what is the main things that you're trying to achieve? What are the metrics that you as a fund manager would judge yourself on if it is going to be in a certain area? So I think we can do something. Will it be perfect in the first instance? No. But the one thing you can be assured of, not just because I'm there, but other people from the SJ, we have got the brains of the industry who've been thinking about this on our working group. It's not FCA people, although they're very good. It's people who are working from the investment association. It's people who have been working in the marketing departments of the products. It's consumer behavior people who say how it can be done. And between them, they can definitely give some kind of labeling that at least guides a consumer better than at the moment that someone just says it's green or this has impact when it doesn't give much detail. So I think it's really important that we try. And then the last point is we don't get too prescriptive. Of course not. We'll only have six or seven labels maximum. And inside that, you have to explain it yourself. But I think you can explain it. We all know in life that we can explain things in a three-hour interview, but it's harder to do it on a two-minute question. But the two-minute question is exactly what a consumer wants because they're not going to read a 300-page prospectus. And that's about labelling. And what I really liked about the discussion paper that you launched in November was a chart that you included um, or a table showing what you expect would be attached to a sustainable label. And to yes. describe it for the audience, you have transitioning, 
which, uh, as the name suggests, is taking companies that are not so sustainable or maybe have low allocation to, to, to green um, revenues and bringing them along that transition path. Then you've got the aligned version where the stocks are already well aligned with sustainability issues. And finally, there's the impact side. I want to come back to the impact side in a moment, but just to stick with the transitioning. The challenge is, and again, going, it was mentioned in the Dear Chair letter about you know, a sustainable investment fund containing two high uh, carbon energy companies in its top 10 holdings. Now, this is the nuance of the problem. For us to be able to demonstrate to retail customers the difference between holding, say, what we consider as a transitioning BP with a more recalcitrant Exxon. And that's the nuance. That's where you obviously we can, in, in, in a, more than your two pages, or in two pages, we can explain it. But for the retail audience, that's a challenge. It is a challenge, but it's one I had to deal with for a decade. So don't worry. I feel, I feel the love and the pain. And, and let's be honest, the reason I'm really, really passionate about that label, and it probably changed from the word transition because it, it's used a lot, but I don't know what the word will be, but it'll be improving, changing, whatever the phrase will be. I think that label is probably the most important because I'm worry, I worry a little bit about some of the work that's been done by other regulators so far. That's, if, it's got, if it's got oil in it, it's out. If it's got, I don't know, wind turbine in, and it might be a wind turbine, it's in. Well, that wind turbine might be really expensive and it might it might not be doing anything else or it might have terrible governance. It might be, you know, there are things that go wrong in good sectors as well. There's no such thing as a good sector, is there, as we know. So I think it's really important that we do that. But I've seen it. I've seen really good examples of someone who owns these things and says, but I voted against BP for three years in a row because they hadn't linked it to their pay. Now they've moved it because we have all collaborated together and they've done it. Now I feel that BP is on that journey of transitioning quickly. That detail is quite useful. I've also seen it the other way where so I said, I integrate ESG everywhere. And then you go, what do you mean you integrate? We, we've covered all of the STGs, all of them, all the time in everything. That's ridiculous. I do my head in. I don't think you can do that without any detail of what, did they vote on someone on an STG? Did they divest? Did they exit a stock because it didn't hit that? No detail whatsoever. On a two-pager, you could absolutely explain some of that to, an, uh, to us, yet alone to a consumer, and say, these are the metrics that we would use to decide whether it's in or out. And I think that's what we're trying to get to. And then, we might get less, we won't get zero, but we might get less of the debate that I had all the time is, why do you own an oil and gas stock? I thought you were a climate champion. And you're sitting again, you can't be a climate champion and just own wind turbines, that won't change the world. It might sound nice, but it won't affect your pension in 20 years time because the world will still be affected by it. And so I think we need to do this and I think we have to try harder and I've got examples and we will like that one. We will put a template together to give guidance, not guidance, some best practice and some ideas. But it won't be perfect, but it is up to the industry to try and have a go rather than divest everything and black and white. This is absolutely crucial in my view, because if, if there is not that clear labeling and ability to hold stocks, the industry will just gravitate to the side, which is the easiest side, which will be exclusions, I know. and will be investing in what are perceived as the greenest stocks. And John, 
we both agree and everyone I know agrees, but it isn't up to the regulator. The regulator will put this nice guardrail for you, but then it is up for your industry to make sure it uses it. Because if, again, if this asset manager CEO who says they care about climate and they're on the panels of all the big things says it, well, then they better do this because it's in their interest to have that transition label work rather than say, oh, let's just go for the easy option and just cut out 20% of the portfolio. Now, and to be fair, the letter that was written by BlackRock only the other week mentions that, that it's, we're all in this, we've all got to do it. It's not just about exit strategies. So I think people are getting that picture. But I do think sometimes everyone comes to the regulators and goes, it's hard. And I'm like, it is hard, but you've got to do your job as well. And that's what that dear chair letter was about. Here's some principles, here's your guiding principles, and now the labeling is on top. But it isn't perfect and it will never be perfect because there is no one label that can fit everything. And we're working through the problems. Another one that, that I see that we have to try and figure out is that you you basically end up with twin objectives. And when you've got twin objectives, the one thing that's guaranteed is they're going to collide in the future. So when you've got the, the performance objective, which is outperform the market, and you've got a non-financial objective, well, they will collide at some point. And, and my personal experience of, of twin objectives colliding is when you run an income fund. And, and sometimes yeah. the income requirement is up against the capital return. So that is where something we've got to work out and how we communicate that. And I think, you know, you have managed that over the years. And sometimes you own a stock where you know the income might not be there for a while, but you want to keep it if you can keep it and um, and do that kind of thing for performance. Um, but I think it's manageable. It's the sort of thing we've always managing. There are many times, God, how many times you've loved, you know, how many times we never meant to fall in love with stocks, are we? But we all have over the years. But you know it got to a price that you think is too high. Your job is always to do the right thing on that and to think about that and to use that limit. And I think that's the same conflicts that we have because you know that that's a safe stock. But safe stock doesn't always mean a good stock. Moving on to the impact side, do you envisage that listed equities can fall under this category? Because for me, it's very hard to prove the additionality that's required to claim impact within listed equities. Oh, it depends on what impact it is. I think it can be. I think they can certainly be part of it. Obviously, it depends what metrics you can use to prove it. But, um, well, we had a diversity fund in the past. We've had things that can be do that. And you can see that it's had impact. It's been fund that has um, proved that it had higher diversity than the the relative index. It explained why it was trying to do stuff. It was also linked to companies that were pushing very hard to on, on search consultants and other things. So I think you can do that, but I think it's your job to work out what area. Obviously, food, food obesity will be, I mean, I'm just making these, not making them up. There's something that there will be that. Then you'd obviously need to have companies that are going to be linked maybe on innovative technology or beyond meat and things like that. You could have listed companies that are linked to the, the objectives that you look at. But for me, that's more thematic. If you think about buying shares in the secondary market, the company, Beyond Meats or whoever it is, that you're buying shares in won't, often won't even know that you have bought their shares. You're just trading shares in the secondary market. And we've seen, seen investment houses run into trouble with regulators elsewhere. Yeah. If I invest in, in a fund that calls itself impact and it's investing 
in technology to get carbon emissions out. I can't claim that my, my ISA has now suddenly removed 100 tons of carbon from the environment. So if you're trading shares in the secondary market to prove impact is very difficult. In fact, the, the impact within the transitioning sector, the brown to green, is much greater. But I do think, I do think um, I've looked at some of the activist investors recently who buy secondary, who are escalating, are putting shareholder resolutions, are putting their point across. And you can do it privately. I, I mean, I've written to many board chairs over the years, and you can do things that are influencing. In fact, I know that we helped uh, one of the largest coffee makers move from unrecycled coffee cups. And it, you, can, you can't say that you had all the impact, but you can certainly be involved in that debate. But what you have to do is prove that you were trying to make an effort, not just standing there passively. My point is, my point, and it comes from, there's a good example from the University of Zurich's Centre for, for Sustainable Finance. They were pointing that if you invest in a green company and it, it doesn't improve over the year, you feel good about it because that company itself, the company itself is having an impact. But if I invest in a brown company and make it better, then I'm actually really having an impact. But the, what I see is the danger is that thematic funds who will invest in technology that helps to move towards the, or, or helps in the, in, in the move to low carbon, they will claim, the, the investor will claim the impact when it's the company's impact. And all we are doing in those type of funds are trading shares in the secondary market. And that, that's a very fair observation and i think it's something that we have to think about because i looked at the example of um bp there are parts of bp that if they demerged it would be in the impact side but they are small and bp so i don't think it would be in there but you and again if bp switched that out it doesn't mean you've done anything differently and it demerged and you suddenly own the stake in a company that was more the electric points or the wind turbine side of it. You haven't done anything different. It just demerged and you suddenly got a share in it and it was still the same economic value as you had when it was part of it, but you would change it. So I think we have to decide how we measure that. But that is the sort of debate that we have. But of course, on impact, you're going to be much more in infrastructure and areas where you are literally employing and private equity and areas where you are helping influence it. And we're spending quite a bit of time as well at the FCA of allowing or thinking about how pension funds, pension funds, not retail investors, could own illiquids up to a point because illiquid, you can't price some of this new stuff daily. And that would be silly. But and we're trying to think about rules. And I think that's what I like at the FCA. Part of that job is to say, how can we remove roadblocks? Now, as you know, as well as I do, the word illiquid is is a bad word in most people's books. And I try and explain to people doesn't have to be. If you get an illiquidity premium, that can be your friend for long-term investors. Obviously, balancing how much you put in there and when you need your money back and all the time horizons. But illiquidity can be a good thing. And I think that's where we can certainly see it on impact. Have you looked at the Fresh Wheels 2 report, a legal framework for impact? Their proposition or their proposal is that we have a different term than impact investing, that it's investor impact. So that it clearly shows the difference between what an impact a company can have itself or the impact an investor has. I, three people have put that in their responses to our labelling 
discussion paper and therefore it is up for review. Thank you. And you should, CFA members, you should respond to that. Moving on to the, the, the net zero ambition that the UK government has, and, and the UK government says that the UK will be the first net zero aligned financial centre. So what does that mean? Right. So I, I laugh sometimes when I meet these companies who've all said, I'm going net zero by 2050. There's a lot of them around. By the way, it's not all of them. So that's good. I'd rather honesty of people that aren't saying it when they don't know how to get there. That's much better than saying it and then go, we'll work it out later. That's just my way of thinking anyway. And I say to people sometimes, I said, well, I'm going to go net zero alcohol in 2050. But I'm going to drink a lot until 2050. I'm joking. But, you know, the, you see the point. And I think it's really important that we say, what do you mean by that? What's your transition plan? Is it linked to targets who on your board is responsible for this what happens if you don't hit it does it affect your bonus does it affect your your continuing employment these kinds of questions are universal to all companies of course there are extra questions that are more sector specific but first of all we want a net zero plan but then we want to know what, what are you doing in 2025 if you're starting to miss it how do you readjust, recalibrate? And by the way, you probably will miss it. That's okay, because no one's going to hit a glide path between now and 2050 without any changes. I mean, my God, think about these big companies in loads of different sectors. It doesn't just mean in oil and gas or mining or electricity. So I think we need to start getting some standardized templates, not perfect, and have certain questions that investors and equity investors, anyone, private equity, anyone could ask. We're trying to do that quite quickly now, because what's happening at the moment, you know, some companies are having shareholder resolutions against them on saying, we're not happy with how you're doing your net zero or your transition plan, but it's ad hoc. Secondly, you're getting companies, good companies, we've had Unilever, National Grid and others say, here's our say on climate. And we're giving it to you. And I've seen some of them and they're very good. And you go, Excellent, but what about the other ones? So we're trying to make sure that there's some kind of consistency here. And I don't know what the answer is, and that's why there's going to be this transition working group, which I think I'll certainly be involved in with many others, including corporate CEOs who are at the coalface, pardon the pun, but they are literally there trying to work it out. Say, what would, what would be acceptable in here? What would work? Should we have a vote on a net zero plan. And if even if we did, how regularly, it might not be every year, and those kinds of questions. If we can get that sorted, and we are using some of the people who are involved in the climate debate for a decade, as well as corporates who are doing this now, that kind of link should make transition plans quicker, more useful for investors. You will still get, just like in anything else, you'll get some companies where you, John, will go, that's a company that I believe is really trying to move. And I'll get another one that you go, it sort of ticks the boxes, but doesn't feel the right one. And then it's up to you to decide to allocate capital because you'll have better decisions because they'll, they'll all be using the ISSB metrics, hopefully. So that will help you. And there'll be other ones you go, I actually want to vote against, whether it's a, a say on climate or whether it's vote against the chairman or whatever. 
and that will raise the bar. And I think that's what we're trying to do. Because at the moment, it is a wild west. The word net zero is bandied about by everyone. There's net zero pension funds. There's net zero asset managers alliance. There's GFANS from Mark Carney. But how are we going to do it if we haven't got the metrics or the right kind of toolkit? So again, it's going to be an early one. Going to try and do it quite quickly. It won't be the be all and end all, but it'll be a starting point, consistent template with the word net zero in. You mentioned the transition plan task force and there to develop a gold standard for transition plans. And they mentioned science-based targets. Will you leverage off the already existing science-based target initiative? Of course. We um, And use the word gold standard. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to, to speak ill, but I think it's very difficult to go straight to gold. And I don't know what the phrase is, but we want at least a guideline template minimum standard that then could be used by many by by many by all internationally and so i i think sometimes the word gold standard can mean only certain people can get there i would rather have a universal usage and then work out what's good and bad inside there just going back to what the government said it was a net zero aligned financial center so are we thinking about stocks that are listed in the uk are we thinking about stocks that that are that investors are based in the UK? Uh, are we? You know, what is that mandate? Well, I think um, if you think the mandate of the FCA, I think it's now over fifty thousand. It's over fifty thousand regulated firms. Most of those, the majority of those, are not listed. They are financially regulated firms. Um, the letter from the Chancellor to my boss, Nick Hill, in March of 2021 said that we have to have regard to net zero in everything we do to help the UK get to net zero by 2050. So that is not just listed vehicles. The Treasury would like to get the UK. Now, of course, the UK is made up of many different industries, companies, ownership structures, all sorts of things from private equity, infrastructure, debt, everything. It's thinking about that in a much more holistic view. How you start that, you might start with one kind of company, but you absolutely would not be thinking it's just for one and not another kind of um, asset owner vehicle. Secondly, I think it's really important. As I said, we would try to think of this that is linked to corporates who can do this and not corporates that are just linked to the UK. because we're more likely to succeed if the standard is, is taken up by many others. And so it's using some of the existing work that's already been done. And some of that work, quite rightly, has not been done in the UK. And of course, the challenge when you look at the FTSE All Share, yeah, I think it's 25% of the revenue arises from the UK. The vast majority of it is outside Correct. the UK. Correct. But, but just to put the point the other way around, we're not, again, this is not some random um, initiative. Ask asset owners, ask asset managers what they're asking the companies of the FTSE 100 with only 25%. They are asking them, what is your net zero plan? What is your transit? So already being asked this, they're getting asked more. You and others have signed up to the net zero alliance of asset managers. Most of your clients are asset owners who've signed up to the net zero alliance of asset owners. Therefore, 
we're all trying to get to that point and we're then trying to get the data that could help you work out whether you're getting there so this isn't some new initiative it's just linking with the things that people are trying to get to giving us a framework because when we think about the footsiology here again you know it's estimated that the 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 composition implies a four and a half degree world and we have to we have to move we have to get on the transition but it's understanding how we get there and it's not just a case of divestment which is not going to solve the problem which uh, i've said many times and i've trying very hard to get the transition label or whatever we call it as the influence and improved label which is very important very quickly circling back to what we talked about at the, be at the beginning and thinking about esg from a company point of view and sustainability for wider society is nearly a, a byproduct of that there is you know there is thinking about this stakeholder capitalism which widens it out a bit but then there's even moving further there's a book written by john lumnack and, and james hawley um, called Moving Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory. In that, they, they talk about it, the system itself. If we can improve the system, then beta returns, the market returns are improved, or at least the risk return profile is improved. And with market returns dwarfing excess returns or alpha, then we should be thinking that way. Now, in some ways, it's okay for asset owners, or sorry, universal owners, to, to, to pursue that. But the fiduciary duty makes it much more difficult for the rest of us to do that. Do you think that over the long term, that's where we're going? Um, I was quoted in that book. So, um, and I have, I think it's a really good book, by the way. I mean, you mentioned it, I wouldn't have um, mentioned it myself. But I think the answer is, we've already started to move that way. I have worked very closely and know very well two of the biggest asset owners in the world, um, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and the Japanese GPIF government pension scheme. And they are both thinking that way because they are such large owners. I don't know if they would use the word universal. It's up to them whether they use that word or not, that they're thinking about their investments and how it makes that difference and that effect. So lots of people are. That also is the case for very large asset managers who are also thinking that, and I think we've seen good examples from some of the largest asset managers recently with not just letters that they're, they're, um, they're thinking about this, that they're having to think this in a bigger picture way. Of course, if I'm just thinking of your listeners, if you are a income investor in debt in Southeast Asia fund, you have to think about that. And that's your primary objective. But on that, you are still thinking about, as we said, is that company paying its employees? Is it working out? Has it got good diversity? Do I think it's got tail risk? Is it going to blow up? And those things link into this. So it might be your secondary exposure, but it definitely is becoming much more important than it would have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. That would still help on the journey because you're starting to price it a bit more. And I think everywhere is pricing it more. Of course, the other way of looking at this, as it becomes priced in, it just becomes part of business. And then we think of the next stage. So I think it, but I do think we are trying to improve those things. We've done that in the past. The standards that we have now on accounting compared to the old days are much better. I mean, there's still problems, but we have made that a universal prob 
we've all by our way pushed for universal standards on an accounting that has meant that we can trust the numbers a lot more. Our credit ratings analysis, all of that stuff has got better. And we've done that not in an individual case by a universal thinking about this. So I think it's just a, an evolution on that. Universal owners, as you mentioned, the Norwegian fund and, and Elgin themselves, because of concentrated ownership, helps us to do this. But now there's, there's questions about whether the, the proxy voting should be sent back down to the clients themselves. And Larry Fink again referred to it in his letter. Do you think that's helpful that if, if, if large asset managers say, well, maybe I should give the vote on these company, at these company AGMs back down to the, the capital owner, helpful or not? Um, I think there's a few ways of thinking about this. The first thing is I'm so delighted that after so many years of trying to explain to people it's, and explaining to chairman of companies, uh, you don't own the company. Mrs. Miggin somewhere or someone owns the company and we are only with a manager who collates that and pulls it. And because, you know, it's like you've seen in the past sometimes flying around the world on private jets, thinking they own the company, saying that they're not paid enough as a CEO. I'm exaggerating. There's lots of wonderful companies who I'm passionate about. But you see that again. You do need you run that company on behalf of the pensioners who own shares in this company, individual shareholders who pull it together and give it to you or me or whatever. So anything that gets the attention that the end investor feels that they are part of the, the ownership of that company is great. And we're getting that a bit. Not, not as much as we could do, but way more than we had in the past. But if we suddenly abdicate responsibility as an asset manager and some of the bigger asset owners down to the individual investor on 50,000 shareholder resolutions a year, I mean, think of your portfolio of 150 stocks. There's 10 resolutions on each one. That's 1,500 resolutions, knowing the nuance of what to do. No, I think there should be someone that does that. That's part of the job of a sophisticated investor or manager who does that on behalf of the owner. If the owner isn't happy how they do that, then they should find a manager or an owner that can do that rather than individually splitting it completely. So. I like it being more devolved, but I worry that splitting it completely just stops people and having so many different voices that the owners and the chair of the boards of companies don't know which way to feel. So I worry about it, but I'm still pleased it's becoming a bigger issue or bigger attention. Sasha, is there anything else you would like to share with members of the CFA, with people that are listening to the podcast? Yes, John. Um, it's really interesting. As you've you quite rightly challenged me, it's a really difficult job as a regulator and as an analyst to think about ESG, how it's becoming mainstream, how it's all linked in. I would just suggest going forward for the CFA itself that it's wonderful that ESG has become part of the um, curriculum. I think that's the word we'd use, but it's also really an adjunct with a CFA ESG exam that ESG becomes more mainstream in the actual level one, level two and level three. Because when I look at any financial um, investor or person who's going to be regulated by the FCA, ESG is becoming much more mainstream. And I would also suggest when I meet a company, if they told me that they put ESG to the side rather than in their own framework, I would say that that wouldn't be mainstream enough. And therefore, I'd want it right in the centre 
And I ask a CEO of any company, is it linked to your objectives rather than adjunct and having an ESG director separate? So what you're saying is the CFA must integrate ESG. Just like you're asking me and everyone else to be doing this. It's a journey, but going forward, I think it needs to keep going and be integrated and be inside the main portfolio, level one, level two, level three, much more than having an adjunct CFA ESG exam. Sasha, I've taken up so much of your time. Thank you so much. But before I let you go, I've got one more question. Have you watched Don't Look Up? And if you have, do you see yourself as Dr. Randall Mindy or Kate DiBiaschi? Well, I've, I've watched it. And my only tip for anyone who hasn't watched it, and it's fantastic, is make sure when, because my, my son watched it without me another time, and he didn't stay till after the credits, because there's a fascinating part, which is absolutely vital to the ending of the program. So there's my top tip. And Kate Piaski, definitely. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sasha. This has been a really, really interesting and useful interaction with you. As you said earlier, I would encourage people to make a submission to that discussion paper and labeling. I really think that is so important to us so that we can communicate clearly what products we're selling, but also to allow us to transition stocks where, where the story is a bit more nuanced. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. If you found this episode interesting, then please share and hit like. Goodbye.